Thank you for listening to this recording of one of the sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church in Milford, Connecticut. The sermon is one part of our public worship on Sundays at Christ Presbyterian Church, Milford. While much of the sermon has broad application, it is directed specifically to the congregation here in Milford and reflects our lives, needs, concerns, and context. We think it's important to note that the sermon follows many other aspects of worship, praise, singing, confession of sins and absolution, scripture reading, and sometimes a baptism or the reception of new members. It precedes prayers, confessions of faith, an offering, and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. All of these are integrated and ideally should not be separated. We're particularly concerned not to separate word and sacrament. By its nature, the sermon calls for a response, receiving the Lord's Supper with the accompanying prayers, reflections, and life of response and community. If you're not a part of Christ's presence, Milford, we hope the sermon is helpful to you and propels you to a full worship and engagement with Jesus' body in your own community. Once again, we won't have a separate reading. I'll just make our way through Nahum as we go. Uh, Nahum is a strange book in many ways. Um, has anyone, like, do you remember reading Nahum? Some of you remember reading Nahum. It's not one that, you know, when you ask people, you know, what are your favorite passages of Scripture, you're hard-pressed to find someone that's like, Nahum, I do devotions to Nahum regularly. Um, for anyone who's not aware, Nahum is a, like, gory, detailed documentation of the siege and fall of Nineveh. So we don't think of it as kind of like devotional literature, devotional writing. You know, it's, it's not like, I want my warm fuzzy for the day, so I'm going to go read Nahum. Um, I want to put a picture in your mind as we're starting into the text. This is now a classic movie, even though it's kind of defined for me, you know, the, the experience of going to the theater for a great, you know, uh, big, big screen picture. Um, the movie Braveheart. 25, 26 years old now, but when it came out, it began to sort of, there was something different. Uh, one is the length, it was an enormously long movie, but two is the way that they were able to capture the violence uh, and the adrenaline, and you know, sometimes in a glorifying way, but sometimes in a way that really like showed you the, uh, just the awfulness of going into hand-to-hand -hand combat with other people. You know, when, when, when human beings clash on a battlefield face to face and are killing each other with their hands and with, you know, weapons that they're holding in their hands. Uh, there's, there's places in the movie where you even get like, you know, blood falls on the camera lens as, as the, the, you know, the gore of what is going on happens. We get a little bit of that picture in Nahum. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a, a caution here. It's, it's not a, a pleasant book to read. Uh, it's a jarring book to read. The, the reason, though, for this kind of focus in a book of God's Word, where God is speaking to his people and is bringing that sort of like blood-on-the-lens image from Braveheart into his holy word to his people, uh, has to do with what's going on at the time. Um, Israel is struggling under vassalship. They, they, they are enslaved, in a way, as a nation, to the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and the Assyrians are, they, they have destroyed the northern kingdom. They have uh, laid waste to large portions of the southern kingdom. They've demonstrated their ability to lay siege to Jerusalem. And Israel is living through a time of darkness and fear of the Assyrians. And in that context, we've got this question of, will God let Assyria go unpunished? And Nahum is saying, no. 
over and over again, Nahum is saying no. This is, uh, the, the title of the sermon actually comes from a, my, the professor that I went through the book of Nahum with, uh, pointed out the character Puddleglum in C.S. Lewis. Uh, Puddleglum is a human-like creature called a marsh wiggle, and he and a group of children have gone down into the underworld to look for a lost uh, prince of Narnia. And in the underworld, there is a, um, a ferryman that, it, that is ferrying them in further into the underworld. And it's sort of you know, the, the picture of uh, crossing the sticks with the, the death as the, as the ferryman. And he keeps this mantra of um, many come down and few return to the sunlit lands. And so every time they ask a question, he'll answer the question and then come back to many come down and few return to the sunlit lands. And at some point, he, he, gets, he starts, many come down and Puddle Glum pipes up and says, yes, yes, we know. Few return to the sunlit lands. You're rather a chap of one idea, aren't you? Well, this is what's going on in Nahum. Nahum is, is focusing in on this because he's dealing with, will God let Assyria go unpunished, despite the, the wickedness and the brokenness and the pain that they've inflicted on God's people? And the answer is, and I'm, I'm quoting my professor here, it's wrong to oppress the people of God, and, then I, and that cannot be allowed to stand. As God's people, we're the apple of his eye, and it bothers him when we're oppressed. And so a book like Nahum, in all its horrific, gory detail, is actually spoken as a word of comfort to God's people to say, God loves his people. And even when God has to punish his people as he's using Assyria to punish his people, he's not going to let Assyria's wickedness against his people go unpunished. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll start working our way through the text. Uh, Lord Jesus, give us wisdom because as we come to this text where we're hearing this comforting message that you are unwilling to allow your people to suffer, that you're unwilling to allow the, the cause of the suffering of your people to go unpunished, enable us to see what that means and what that doesn't mean, uh, to enter into this comfort in a nuanced way that actually speaks your comfort to us, but as your people not as members of our tribe or our nation or our political group or whatever things we are tempted to insert in there and whatever things we are, tend to, we are tempted to view as our suffering that we want you to, to bring this sort of vengeance against people that we think are our enemies when in fact uh, we as your people, we as the people of God have a, a different set of enemies than we as the American people or we as whatever group, uh, we as Presbyterians, we as whatever we might want to insert there. Uh, give us wisdom, give us understanding, and apply your word to us. Now the, amen, sorry. <laughs> uh, the opening verse, as is so often in the Minor Prophets, gives us who we're dealing with, uh, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, the problem here is we don't know much beyond this. Uh, we don't actually know where Elkosh is other than it's in the southern kingdom. Uh, we don't know much about Nahum. We don't know when he lives. Now, during the prophecy, he says that God is going to make Assyria like Thebes. And he's pointing to the fall of an Egyptian city that fell in either 664 or 663 B.C. Uh, so it's after that point. Um, and he is foretelling the fall of Nineveh to the Medes and Babylonians in 612 B.C. So it's somewhere between, you know, that, that's the earliest and latest date we can look at. But we don't know specifically where. Now, it is stated that Nineveh is sort of at is its, its ascendancy during the book. And Nineveh reaches sort of the height of its um, power and, and uh, physical 
boundaries in about 640. So that's probably a good guess for about where we might look for when this is taking place. We're, we're guessing it's about 640. Um, we looked at Nineveh back in Jonah. And Jonah is writing in the 700s BC, uh, before even the fall of the northern kingdom. And so we see in Nineveh this period of uh, repentance. Jonah shows up, preaches repentance to the Ninevites, and they respond overwhelmingly. Now, I noted we can't find that period of repentance in Nineveh's own records because if you retreat from that repentance, if you decide you're going to build your glory on your own power again, you don't want to talk about repenting to the God of some nation that you later destroy. Uh, so they blot it out of their record. But that repentance probably by 745 is gone. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser comes to power in Nineveh at that time and begins this aggressive campaign that under his successor Sargon destroys the northern kingdom in 722. Um, and then by 701, we, I, I talked about this in our sermon last week, how they had actually come and besieged Jerusalem and are threatening Jerusalem and are telling Jerusalem, well, if you'll come and follow us, we can promise you peace. This is Nineveh exceeding the warrant that God gave it. And Nineveh, the Assyrians in general, you know, we, we might think about ancient warfare as horrific. And so then we might kind of paint with the same brush all ancient civilizations. Well, warfare is horrific, so whether it's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or the Romans, whoever they are, they do awful things and awful atrocities to everyone they conquer. But Assyria actually stands out among ancient uh, empires as really, really awful. Uh, the Assyrians do horrific things to the people they conquer. This is, this is really just sort of a, a behavioristic approach that they take to conquest. Uh, when the Assyrians show up, they say, surrender to us. And if you surrender to us, life's not going to be that bad. Uh, they're, they're about like most other nations in when you surrender to the Assyrians without a fight, uh, they, they don't kill everyone, they don't enslave anyone, everyone. But they are the dominant power now. They decide who's king. They decide how long he gets to reign. They decide how much the taxes are going to be. Life isn't as good as it was. But it's not terrible. But for those who offer resistance, they're trying to make the point to other nations because they're on this, like, aim of world conquest. If you offer resistance, we will utterly destroy you. Uh, when they defeat a city, they take the leaders and they stake them out in the desert. And they flay them alive and they leave them to die of exposure then they either execute or enslave the entire population of whatever city they're going into. And they're, they're willing to kill enormous numbers of people in this process. Uh, when they, what they do with this uh, enslavement, they're trying to crush the culture. They're trying to break up the culture, uh, obliterate you know, ways of life, language groups, etc. So what they'll do is they'll deport people all over and make a patchwork out of their empire so that you can't have any sort of like nationalism or culture to come together around as a means of resisting the Assyrians. And also, in the ancient world, this is dishonoring. If we're stamping out your tribal group, we're stamping out your language, we're stamping out your heritage, stamping out your gods, you don't want that to happen to you. So if you see that happen to a neighbor, and then the Assyrians show up at your doorstep and say, we want you to surrender, you're more likely to say, well, wait a minute, if I surrender, I get to keep my culture and and, you know, we, we sort of get some semblance of still being a people, and if we don't, we cease to exist. Uh, this, the Assyrians remind me, I'm listening to a, um, uh, a history of the Mongol invasions. And the Assyrians are remarkably similar to the Mongols, except while the Mongols will just obliterate everyone, the Assyrians torture people in addition to that. 
But as the Mongols are reaching out across Europe, uh, Genghis Khan at one point calls for this great colloquium of Mongols. And he says, as he's sending out the, uh, the word, everyone needs to gather together, I'm gathering an army. He says, those of you who don't listen to me, those Mongol kings who don't listen to me and respond to me will be like a stone dropped into water. They will cease to exist. It's that sort of mindset that the Assyrians bring when they're bringing conquest. And in the face of that, uh, in the face of 150 years of Israel experiencing suffering at the hands of the Assyrians, uh, this book is a, a, an assurance that God cares that God is not going to see that kind of torture, that kind of injustice, that kind of cruelty go forward against his people, and even in his world, unpunished. And we, we see a bit of grace, actually, in how God set this up. I will continue from, from verse 1 into verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This is not often the picture we like to paint of God. God is, is a loving God. God is a God who comes near to his people. God is a God who forgives. But love is not uh, painted with the same brush. Uh, love doesn't mean that there are no standards. Uh, love can't mean that God just lets whatever happen will happen. It's, oh, I, I'll love and forgive everything. God actually has to care about justice. God has to be the one who enforces vengeance against injustice, or else his love is meaningless. It goes on in verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Uh, this language is, uh, alludes to, back in Exodus 34, verse 6, as God is introducing himself to the Israelites and declaring what sort of God it is that has broken the bondage of slavery in Egypt and drawn them out. He describes himself to Moses, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, we're, we're hearing tied up there together the same sort of contrast as we heard in verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, in order for God to be the God of love who can extend grace and mercy to thousands, He also must be the God of justice who in his extending of grace and mercy is drawing people into that justice and into a love that produces a better world, a better experience of his people. I should have uh, made a quick note on, on outline here. Um, in order to deal with Nahum, I'm going to kind of tell the story. And so we'll, we'll spend some time, first of all, we're looking at the, this context and the, the grace that we see in that context. Then we'll go into the violence of God's love. Um, the, the telling of the story of Nineveh's downfall. Uh, then we'll spend a little bit of time, briefly, looking at what do we do with that. But I know that I'll, I'll sometimes have a tendency to be like, now for my second point, and by this point we're like 25 minutes into things, don't assume that that means we're going to go for an hour. Um, but, you know, the, the trying to, to deal with a whole book and tell a story that we're relatively unfamiliar with, I'm going to mostly just be telling the story here. Uh, skip down to, to verse 6, Nahum 1. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, 
and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Uh, here again, this, this contrasting picture, the Lord is good, the Lord is the refuge of his people, and yet he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Uh, that imagery of a stone dropped into water. You get that sort of picture of what God is saying is in store for his enemies, which is meant as a comfort to his people. Jump ahead to verse 12. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a commandment about you. And now we, we get a shift. So for there, we were hearing second person speaking to Israel and speaking comfort to Israel. I'm going to, to take away the yoke of your enemies. Now he's speaking to the enemies. No more shall your name be perpetuated. For the house of your gods I will cut off, the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you, or, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cast off. We actually see, as, as we prepare to head into this um, just orgy of bloodshed, this dark picture of God's wrath being poured out on his enemies, that this is for his people. That this is the extension of God's grace to his people. And his people in 640 are living under the worst of their kings. Manasseh is a king for 40 years. He follows Hezekiah, who's a relatively good king, and so the, the contrast is very sharp. It's under Manasseh that tradition ascribes the prophet Isaiah is sawn in two. Uh, it's under Manasseh that we have Isaiah speaking out and calling out against Israel's uh, debauchery against the poor. The wealthy are taking advantage of the poor, are, are, are experiencing vassalship themselves, and are squeezing the weak in their midst even worse so that they can avoid the uh, realities of their declining status. And Manasseh is the head of this. And yet it's while Israel is in all of this wickedness of their own, and experiencing the wickedness of their king, that God is saying, but the people that are sort of the outside source of this, the, the secondary cause, I'm going to have vengeance on them. In the midst of Israel's sin, God is speaking grace and is reminding them of his care for them as his people. So now we'll jump into the violence of God's love, uh, what this actually looks like for God to begin to bring his vengeance against Nineveh. We read, the scatterer has come up against you. This is chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 1. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. This is picturing the, the sacking of a city and the danger that befalls a city. You know, a chariot is a war machine. It's like a high-speed tank by modern standards, and we're picturing chariots racing through the streets. Uh, what's that going to do to the population that's present in the streets? 
He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. Now, the picture here is not that they're stumbling in God's judgment. It's rather that they're racing forward to the spoil and to the pillage uh, so quickly that they're stumbling. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Now, what is being pictured in that? And remember, this is predictive. This hasn't happened yet. This is in about 640, probably, uh, Nahum talking about something that we know happens in 612 B.C. Now, what ends up happening, the actual downfall of Nineveh, we know from uh, secular sources, from, from the, the sources from Nineveh and also from the Medes and the Babylonians, who are the people that destroy Nineveh, um, that the siege only lasts three months. And that might sound long, but you picture a really massive city. Nineveh is one of the world's largest cities at this point. Uh, that city being besieged, typically it takes months and months, if not years. Uh, the siege of Jerusalem lasts close to three years before it's broken. Uh, the siege of Samaria in the northern kingdom, when it's destroyed, is very similar. It usually takes well over a year for people to be so starved and so emaciated and to reach the point where they're willing to throw open the gates and give up when they know what that's going to involve. Uh, the siege of Nineveh only takes three months. And what appears to have happened is that the Medes and Babylonians uh, built a dam. There, there, there are two, um, two rivers that flow into Nineveh. And I'm trying to look up the name, but the names aren't that important. Um, there are two rivers that flow into Nineveh. And during Sennacherib, as he expanded Nineveh and, and built Nineveh into this, you know, this city that looks like and is experienced as one of the world's great cities, um, he harnessed the power of these two rivers to provide a certain level of like an almost, you know, running water uh, sort of ability. Uh, they, they built into the, uh, the, the city walls gates that allowed the river to flow underneath the walls so that inside the city you had fresh water. Now, this would mean that it's going to be harder to starve out the city. It's got a military value that you've got a fresh water source and a way to get rid of refuse by pouring it in, you know, if you pour in downstream, it's going to get flushed out. And if you drink upstream, it's going to be uh, fresh water. But when you build a river such that it's going to actually pass under your walls, you're allowing a potential entryway. Uh, if water can get through, humans potentially could get through. Well, what the Medes and Babylonians decide to do is to dam up the river, so they're depriving Babylon of the, um, uh, what's it called, uh, of, of their fresh water source. But also, they build a dam that allows them to build up a lot of pressure behind the dam. And then at some point, they break the dam. And what is now a lake behind the dam pours out, and instead of the river that they've built the defenses of the city such that it can handle the normal river, it's now a flood that just forces its way through the wall and breaks down the wall, and the Medes and Babylonians are able to rush in. And so we have this statement, uh, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped, she's carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Now, we're not sure if we're using the queen of uh, Nineveh stylistically to represent the city, uh, kind of like we talk about the whore of Babylon to represent the, the destruction of, of Rome and things like that, or if it's literally saying that the queen is being confronted by foreign um, soldiers. Um, but in either case, uh, the, the result of a sacking is horrific. Uh, Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and wealth of all precious things. I'm going to read, and I'm not going to do it justice, but I'm going to read a passage from Henry V, 
uh, when Henry is uh, besieging the French town of Harfleur. And he's making this appeal to Harfleur saying, basically, that this is the reality of siege warfare. If I have to break your gates down, if I have to throw my army at you and break you open that way, I lose control of my army. And there's nothing I can do about that. So he's calling on Harfleur to surrender while he's in control of his army by painting a picture of what a sacking looks like. How yet resolves the governor of this town? This is the latest parl we will admit. Therefore, our best mercy give yourselves, or like to men proud of destruction, defy us to our worst. For, as I am a soldier, a name that in my thoughts becomes me best, if I begin the battery once again, I shall not leave the half-achieved Harfleur till in her ashes she lie buried. The gates of mercy shall be all shut up, and the fleshed soldier, rough and hard of heart, in liberty of blood, in liberty of bloody hand shall range, with conscience wide as hell, mowed like grass, your fresh fair virgins and your flowering infants. What is it then to me if impious war, arrayed in flames like to the prince of fiends, do with his smirched complexion all fell feats and linked to waste and desolation. What is to me when you yourselves are cause if your pure maidens fall into the hands of hot-forcing violation? What rain can hold licentious wickedness when down the hill his, he holds his fierce career? We may as blood as bootless spend our vain command upon the enraged soldiers and their spoil, as send precepts to Leviathan to come ashore. Therefore, you men of Harfleur, take pity on your town and on your people, whilst yet my soldiers are in my command, whilst yet the cool and temperate wind of grace or blows the filthy and contagious cloud of heady murder, spoil, and villainy. If not, why, in a moment, look to see the blind and bloody soldier with foul hand defile the locks of your shrill, shrieking daughters, your fathers taken by silver beards and their most reverend heads dashed to walls, your naked infants spitted upon pikes, whilst the mad mothers with their howls confused do break the clouds as did the wives of Jewry at Herod's bloody, haunting slaughtermen. What say you? Will you yield and this avoid, or guilty in defense be thus destroyed? Shakespeare is painting in vivid detail the reality of ancient world conquest. And what Nahum is showing us is not Nahum being vindictive, He's showing us this is what happens to God's enemies when God withholds his sustaining hand. When God says to Assyria, I was using you as my hammer, and you took it to your head. Uh, you remember last week when I talked about the, the representative of Assyria saying to Israel, if you listen to us, we'll make your life good. Don't listen to your king who's telling you to trust in your God. Your God can't save you. There are very explicit places where Assyria began to take that charge that they'd been given, punish God's people, and began to say, rather than just we're the instrument of God's retribution, they're saying we're more powerful than your God. Your God can do nothing. Your God is no different than the other gods that we've trampled under our boot as we've taken those cities. And so God is saying to his people, not to Nineveh, this is what happens when I withdraw my hand of protection even from a people that I was using as my instrument of justice because they took it too far. Because they became the instrument of injustice themselves. And God is saying, I'm not going to ignore as Assyria rains cruelty on my people. 
there are consequences to ignoring the reality of God's people. And the result is going to be that it's wrong to oppress the people of God. And that can't be allowed to stand. As God's people, we're the apple of his eye. And it bothers him when we're oppressed. And when that happens, God says, I'm going to withdraw my hand of common grace. I'm going to withdraw my general protection from Assyria. And Assyria is going to experience wrath and destruction. Now, we might ask, do the weak bear a disproportionate burden? And the answer is yes. We hear both in the, the, the lines from Henry V and in uh, the description of the sack of Assyria, women, the old, infants, all bear a disproportionate burden. Uh, granted, Assyrians are killing all the men. If, if you look like you could potentially carry a spear against them, you're dead. So let's not overlook that reality. But yes, the weak bear a disproportionate burden. Uh, that's the reality of a broken and fallen world. And what that ought to do is increase our zeal for the weak, to protect and care for the weak, to set up just societies in which we are concerned for protecting and caring for the weak. Now, what do we do with this picture of wrath poured out on the enemies of God? One is we don't want to trivialize. Now, we worked our way through the book of First Peter talking about being um, the suffering people of God. And I acknowledge the appropriateness of understanding that the people in First Peter were suffering in similar ways to the ways those of us in the West might be able to claim that we suffer as God's people. And it's appropriate that we be comforted as God's suffering people when we hear of God's zeal and passion for his people. At the same time, though, when we're hearing this sort of destruction wrought against those who are persecuting God's people, let's not kid ourselves that that's the kind of persecution we're experiencing. Uh, there's a call here to, uh, I can't think of the word, to, to, to brotherhood, sisterhood, with the church of God that is truly suffering in the world today. Uh, the church of God in Afghanistan, in China, in Myanmar, and the Central African Republic, in South Sudan, in places where God's people are actually experiencing violent persecution. God is speaking to his people who experience violent persecution and saying, you are the apple of my eye and your suffering is not going to stand. I will avenge myself against my enemies and vindicate my people. And again, not, not, over, um, not exaggerating our suffering as Westerners, as, as people living in, in relatively safe and comfortable and relatively just societies, what we should be feeling is fellowship with our brothers and sisters in places where the violence of oppression is felt. And we want to look for ways that we can stand alongside of them. Dave and I are going to be going to a meeting Tuesday night to look at how we can organize the churches of Milford into a consortium to uh, seek to sponsor refugee families from Afghanistan. Uh, it's important that we take seriously. This is going to be a big deal. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of effort to sponsor a refugee family. But these refugees, some of them believers, many of them not, um, are fleeing from persecution, are fleeing from the Taliban destroying all and sundry before them. And so we need to take seriously a, a call to pony up, 
to the effort that's required to care for, you know, it would be wonderful if we ended up being able to care for a, a Christian family. Of course, we'd, we'd love the opportunity to, to witness to a Muslim family um, that, that's a refugee as well. Um, but to take seriously how we can stand alongside of the church that is suffering true violence. Another aspect of what do we do with this is that we really need nuance in identifying the people of God. Uh, in Afghanistan, there are Afghan Christians that are our brothers and sisters. And there are, you know, up until a few months ago, there were U.S. military personnel who were agnostics who were not our brothers and sisters. I'm not saying uniformly Afghans are Christians and, and U.S. military personnel are agnostics. I'm saying when you're, when you're considering who is my brother and you see the Afghan translator and the U.S. soldier, the Afghan translator might be your brother and the soldier might not be. And we just have a tendency as humans to over-identify with our tribe. Uh, Rome did this. Rome, once it was first legal to be a Christian and then it was official, formally a, a Christian empire, Rome began spreading the uh, impact of Rome and seeing it as the same thing as spreading the gospel. Uh, then we see the Holy Roman Empire trying to do the same thing, going, going to barbarians with the, the gospel by the sword. And in, case, in some cases, they're actually reaching barbarians that missionaries had already reached. And they're bringing slaughter to Christian nations. Um, more recently, England had this mindset. Uh, the British Empire is spreading the gospel, and, and the gospel includes uh, the sovereignty of the British crown. It doesn't. The United States is, is often very guilty of this, in that we tend to think we are a Christian nation, and as a Christian nation where we bring our influence, that is good for the church of God. And yet we ignore the reality when, uh, back in 2003, I was in a church that was way over-identifying that. Uh, as we dropped missiles on Baghdad, some of those missiles were striking Christian churches. And those Christians were our brothers and sisters. And we were ignoring that reality. I'm not making a, a political statement about whether or not we go to war, but when our nation goes to war, we need to be aware that we are the church. And that the church is not the same thing as a nation. And that when nations go to war, churches are among those that suffer. And that God's people are called to identify with and seek to alleviate the suffering of God's people and of those who are experiencing injustice of, of whatever form. Another uh, question for us. Where are the areas that we're failing to rejoice over God's victory? You know, in the, the first uh, civil rights movement, it is to our shame that the Caucasian church largely saw the activities of, of what was being organized by historically black churches uh, very often lumped those in with the argument between theological conservatives and theological liberals. And very often it was the theological conservatives that were standing with the white supremacists. We need to be very careful when we're engaging issues of justice to look for how is God triumphing for his people. Now, as, as you wade into, we're in the midst of a new uh, civil rights movement, nuance is always called for. Uh, there are individual statements. There are focuses that we might critique. But God's justice calls for care for the weak. And we need to look at how we can position ourselves, the people of God, to support the weak and care for the weak and rejoice when God seeks to uh, break the chains of slavery of the weak. 
Another side, we're, and I, I cited this already a bit, where are we over-identifying God's people with our tribe? With people that look like us, that think like us, that have the same things or the, the same amount of things as us? Are we too quick to identify people of our socioeconomic status with the us and ignore the people of other socioeconomic conditions uh, that are God's people, that we are called to brother and sisterhood with? Finally, where are we taming God? You know, look at those first lines in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. As evangelicals, it is very common to sort of think of God as your buddy. Uh, think of God as sort of your, your good luck charm you keep in your back pocket. Uh, think of God in this very touchy-feely way as someone that's there to, to you know, the, when, I, when I started talking about the book of Nahum, it's not really devotional literature. I do my devotions looking for a warm fuzzy for the day. God is awesome. God is powerful. God is bigger than we are, and God is engaged in a mission that is much higher than my comfort or my individual personal happiness. And God is working towards His ends in that mission. Now, with all of these perspectives, all of these places where we're wanting to say, are we, are we standing with the weak appropriately? Are we identifying uh, God's victory among the weak? Are we, are we acting as the church to see God's enemies, not my enemies, as who God is standing against? that's beyond what we're capable of doing. And so that earlier portion when we're looking through chapter 1 and looking at this, this contrast of God coming near to His people and bringing justice to those that oppose His people, we need God to draw us to Himself. Uh, we can't do that careful nuance of understanding how to apply God's wrath to God's enemies on our own. We need God to do that in us. By what He accomplished at the cross, in His resurrection and in sending His Spirit to unite us to Him, that's the only way we can actually live faithfully as His people that stand with the weak, that stand with our brothers and sisters, is by His power. And a book like Nahum shows us He is powerful. He has the power to do what He says He will do. And so we call on Him to give us the ability to be faithful as His people. Let's pray together. Lord God, the one who is the whirlwind, the one who is the storm, the one who for, for whom clouds are the dust of your feet. We come before you as your people, thankful that you are for us, but thankful also that you overcome our misconceptions of what us is and of what it is for you to be for us. Lord, we call with Nahum for you to avenge your people against their enemies. But give us wisdom as we pray that. And give us the ability to stand in your power, not the strength we would ascribe to whatever false face we give to your people, but rather to in humility, relying on Christ, be able to be those who proclaim your victory in the midst of the nations. We pray it in Jesus' name.
Amen.